loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Rose Anderson. Rose received her MFA in writing at California Institute of the Arts, where she was awarded the Emmy, I think it's spelled, uh, uh, pronounced Emmy, Kuriyama Thesis Prize. Her essays have appeared in The Cut, Glamour, and Elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles with her spouse, Josh, and their dog, Charlotte. And today, we'll be talking mostly about her memoir, The Heart and Other Monsters, Welcome, Rose. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. And um, some, uh, you know, I read pretty much a book a week for the show. Occasionally, someone hasn't written a book, but most of my guests (laughs) have. And so um, I want to tell you that your book stands out both in terms of the beauty of the writing and also in terms of your vulnerability. And I want to really thank you for that because I felt as if I really dove into your experience in a way that moved me quite a bit. Oh, thank you so much. Absolutely. So let's start with, uh, you know, the heart of, of the story, which is your sister, Sarah, and her addiction and her death and what that, how that impacted your life. Can you just share with people somewhat, uh, you know, the beginning of, of um, that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my younger sister, Sarah, died of an overdose in 2013. Um, <clears throat> she had been an addict since she was in high school. And she died of an overdose, which was something that we had long dreaded, but it wasn't a complete surprise. In the months following her death, we found out that she had been involved with some pretty dangerous people and that her death uh, may not have been accidental. I also struggled with addiction, but I am 12 years sober. When I was 24, thank you, I got clean. And when Sarah was 24... She died. So The Heart and Other Monsters was sort of a love letter to her life and an investigation of her death. One thing that that I really appreciated about the book is how, um, you know, I, I came to love Sarah, even though you were so truthful about the difficulties that came out of her addiction. I felt as if I never lost her as a person. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) That underneath that was this beautiful spirit who was was stolen from you, in a sense, by substances. And um, so that makes it, of course, more heartbreaking. Um, yeah, but I think that's also so important. I've I've known a lot of people in program, and everyone is different, and everyone is uniquely beautiful, and it's the substance that undermines who that person is. Uh, yeah, the, the people are different, but the addiction's the same. I I think in a lot of ways, um, and I 
I struggle with um, either vilifying people after they've died or memorializing them as perfect people. And my sister was a complicated, beautiful human being and addiction certainly brought out uglier sides of her as it did for me and most addicts I know. So I really wanted to portray all sides of her because I think addicts often get pigeonholed as, as one thing. And in the process of kind of, um, I often, since I do also very often work with addiction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the choice, the choices you have to make to keep yourself safe in a relationship with an addict um, can sometimes lead to people sort of cutting off emotionally. <laughs> that loving detachment thing is not easy to come by, is I guess what I... No, it's not. And, and particularly, you know, my sister and I weren't speaking when she passed away um, because I was an addict in recovery and I had to set firm boundaries with her because I for my own health and well-being. Um, and I still think it was the right choice, but it certainly becomes more complicated when you realize you're never going to get a chance to mend those fences. But I think it's, yeah. it's why I'm still sober. So it mm-hmm. wasn't the wrong choice. It's just a hard choice. Very, very painful choice. Yeah, uh, very. Why don't I have you share a little bit from the book, if you would, um, sure. from the first chapter? All right. There are many ways into this story. The girl, the dog, the boys, the drugs, the gun, the man, my heart. I told my sister once that if she died, she would ruin my life. We were sitting on my couch facing each other. She was going through withdrawal and I was trying to talk her into sobriety by any means I can think of. I know, Sarah said. When I was little, I thought I had two hearts, a healthy, shiny, blood-filled, glorious beast and a gnarled one that hid behind it. The second heart fed on the first, taking blood and oxygen in large, greedy gulps, but somehow never lost its withered shape. I thought the second heart was where all my bad thoughts lived. This is her home now. This is what I know. My sister died on November 19th, 2013. She died of an overdose in her bedroom, bathroom. She was dead for four days before her body was found. Her dog spent those four days trying to claw and bite his way through the bathroom door. Sarah's boyfriend, Jack, found her. I have never been able to ask him what her body looked like. The police thought she had accidentally OD'd and she was cremated within another few days. Given what you end up talking about, that your supposition is that probably she was, she did not, she was killed. She didn't, uh, you know, choose. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't an accident. (laughs) Um, that, That does leave you kind of trying to imagine the the what actually happened uh it stood out in the book that it seemed as if you came back around that you know i know one part of grief is that our our brains keep keep on repeat 
Yes. <laughs> you know, terribly, <laughs> terribly, yes. even in, in, uh, very often in what I would call sort of quote unquote normal loss. Yes. Expected uh, loss. Expected yeah. loss, um, that, that your mind can get stuck in a loop. But in this case, you have so much to loop on. Oh yeah. I mean, it was maddening. It, there was so much unknown um, about how she died. I was also really stuck on the fact that, she, you know, she had, um, hadn't been found for four days. There were many sort of like mental obsessions, I called them, that kept me up at night. Um, and I think a large part of my grieving process was trying to convince myself that if I knew exactly what happened, I would feel better. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's actually the case, but sort of like the pursuit of knowing um, <laughs> kept me and my grief brain occupied for a number of years um, in a way that I think was ultimately <laughs> helpful because it allowed me to spend time in a sense with my sister and her life and her death in this very like intimate, creative way. Um, it was also really painful and hard to Absolutely. investigate her death um, and at times felt dangerous and unwieldy and expensive. It's very expensive to order court documents and to actually look into things. Um, so yeah, that obsession, that repeat was really a huge part of why I felt like I actually had to write the book because I needed some depository for all the thoughts. It occurs to me too that sometimes that that um, you know brain loop has something to do with the enormity of death itself that we can't really comprehend that, and so our brains pick something else. Absolutely, I mean, there's <laughs> does very that feel true? Panic, <laughs> yeah. I have yeah. to say, after everyone, anyone who's been close to me who's passed away within a few days, I've had a very intense panic attack about my own death or death in general. And I think it's just an existential moment of fear that gets activated when you're faced with death. And for me, um, certainly focusing on, you know, the details of Sarah's death was an escape from that anxiety. It's interesting because, um, uh, there's been a recent book about anxiety and grief, and there's much more recognition that anxiety uh, comes along with grief. Um, you know, I've Absolutely. had clients who, who developed phobias after a loss. You know, it's, it's um, pretty common to have that kind of anxiety. But if you don't understand that's part of why it's happening, it's really hard to handle. It's frightening. Yeah, you don't really know what's going on. You feel like you should just be sad or depressed and the panic feels um, misplaced. I, uh, you know, I, I lost my dad when I was fairly young. And while that was a complicated relationship, I still experienced that. So by the time my sister passed away, I was at least could name it. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually took myself and, and I had a great therapist at the time and I did EMDR very quickly after she died to help manage that panic and that anxiety because it was so overwhelming. It felt uh, like I couldn't live my life. <laughs> well, and that would, that would be highlighted by such a traumatic death. 
Yes. Uh, the way that you imagine she probably died, or even if she died, you know, of a just quote unquote of an ODE and the time before she was found, you know, all those details to me would would um, add trauma to the loss itself. Yeah, it's the stuff of nightmares. You know, I would I, I tend to use humor to de to deflect and to get through grief and. I would joke it felt like I was in a really bad Law and Order episode that like never seemed to end mm. um, because it just felt like this doesn't happen to me. You know, this, right. what, is, what do you mean she, she died and wasn't found for four days? What do you mean she, she knew people that are on trial for killing other people? Like what, how is this even possible? Kind uh, of, but it was <laughs> a kind of a, a warp world where you you don't know where you are a little bit yeah and I think you know at times I would feel like I'd, I'd have a handle on the grief to a certain extent and then some new information would pop up you know th things to kind of like months and months to unfold so you you know you think you understand the nature of the beast and then and then you, you then you find out this next piece of information that makes it all the more horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that in, in this particular case, it made the grieving process just that much more, or at least the initial part, much more prolonged and traumatic. I was also really aware, you know, it, it, the, um, this, this line where you, this experience where you told her if you die, you'll ruin my life, uh, stayed in the back of my mind the whole rest of the book. Mm. That was in the first chapter. Um, because then when, that that's a natural thing, you know, I wasn't completely sure. My, my wife died of cancer, you know. Mm. Uh, she was sick for 10 years. She outlived her prognosis by, you know. And so to me, that was a fairly normalized death if you will sure uh and expected and we worked on how to handle that and all the rest and still i wasn't convinced until i could go forward mm -hmm. which i couldn't know until she died i i couldn't be completely convinced i could does that make sense absolutely um but then you were convinced you couldn't yes <laughs> and and so then when that happens I was I had that as kind of an overlay on your grief uh, that you were so convinced you couldn't that you actually actually told her you couldn't and how that might have played played with your grief you know um, absolutely I mean I think that when I said you know you'll ruin my life it was well, in part, it was uh, emotional manipulation to get her to get clean. <laughs> but it was also, um, you know, my fear that I wouldn't know how to exist in this world without her. And not just without the good things, but without our arguments or, you know, she was an attention stealer and, and would make everything about her. And a lot of my personality was developed as a big sister who needed mm. to take care of someone and mm. um and to you know deal with her or like my our relationship with our parents was you know very much that of two two children and all of a sudden I was an only child so 
And I also didn't feel like I would be able to say, stay sober. I thought that I was staying sober to be a good example for her. And it took her passing away to realize I was staying sober for myself. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's that, very interesting, Rose, because it's a, it's there's a paradox there that, yes. you know, she, she she did sort of steal the stage, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing bigger could happen than what happened to her. Yep. And yet in that, I think you're telling me you found you. Oh, I'm doing I'm doing this to make a life for myself. It certainly put it to the forefront where I just realized, like, I don't have time to mess around. Mm. I, this is it. This is my life. And I now no longer can focus it on taking care of this other person. So how do I take care of myself mm. now that she's gone? Absolutely. You know, I'm thinking about when someone in a family kills themselves. Yes. Uh, and how that, statistically speaking, um, makes it more likely that someone else will. Yes. Um, however, I have a feeling that for some people it goes the other way. You know, yeah, absolutely. Where, where you feel the impact of that and you never want someone to experience the impact that that's made. Yes, and I knew definitively I would never use or drink again after she died. It was like a certainty that I hadn't, hadn't fully felt until that moment. Oh, I, I definitely want to talk more about that. And it's about time for a break. Great. Uh, you know, because knowing program quite well, uh, to know a thing like that, um, most people that I've, I've known, they're, they're clean and sober for 40 years, let's say, because I'm old now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but they never say, I will never again, right? They're, yeah. They're constantly reminding themselves, I can't do that, you know, one day at a time and all. So I'd love to talk a little further about that for of you. Of course. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, links to the book I wrote, A Notion Between Them, a link to BetterHelp, which is an online therapy um, uh platform that I'm endorsing and you can you can like me on Facebook follow me on Twitter etc etc and to find Rose Anderson you can go to roseandersonwrites.com and Anderson is spelled with an e a n d e r s e n roseandersonwrites.com be back soon Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. 
Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Rose Anderson about her sister, Sarah, and the book she wrote about her their relationship, her death, Rose's grief, the heart, and other monsters. And before the break, Rose, uh, you said that when Sarah died, you knew with a certainty that you would never use again. And I was saying it stood out because um, most of the clean and sober people I know refrain from from um, saying a thing like that, right? <laughs> yeah, it feels dangerous. <laughs> it could be dangerous, but mm-hmm. but I believe you that you're just totally certain about that. And I'm wondering if you could co- talk about that some. Yeah. Um, I think for me, a technique I, I used, um, I think I was gosh, five or six years sober when Sarah died. And up until that point, I sort of um, had, you know, mental tricks that I used if I ever felt the urge to to drink or use. I mean, one of them, obviously, going to AA meetings and talking with my sponsor. But I would also, um, if I had that urge to drink or use, I would immediately think of some of my worst moments from using to, to try to pair them so I wouldn't glamorize or glorify my using days. And that had always really helped me stay on track. As soon as Sarah died and as soon as I found out that, you know, her body had been alone for four days, um, anytime the thought of alcohol or drugs came up, I immediately thought of her body. And it was just so horrifying mm. that it became a certainty in a way that I don't know would have been possible any other way. And if anything now, if I smell alcohol or I, you know, see someone doing cocaine, which was my drug of choice on TV, I get kind of physically nauseous. Mm. I have like a, a physical kind of repulsion to it now that I obviously never had before. Um, and so I, yeah, I feel confident, which is a, not normally, you know, um, suggested in a way, as soon as you're confident is when the disease comes and gets you. And I leave room, obviously, for something changing. And, and, and I know that I always have AA and I have sober people in my life if I ever need to talk to them. But in a very physical way, um, I just don't think I could ever do it again. 
and you would probably see the danger coming. Absolutely. If that, if that thought changed, you know. A hundred percent. It would probably very much scare me. <laughs> right. I would. And and there, I have enough people in my life that I, you know, speak with openly and honestly often enough that if I ever did say anything along those lines, it, it would scare them too. Um, and I would get, you know, help if I needed it. But yeah, I can say um, pretty strongly. I haven't had that urge since she, since she died, which is almost seven years now. Hmm. And so that brings me to something, you know, you came from the same family. Your family, like lots of families, had issues and problems and, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuff <Yep. laughs> that, um, that, that doesn't always lead to addiction, but maybe, you know, pushes up the volume a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Yep. Uh, You can tell us whatever you do or don't want to tell us about that. But um, (laughs) what I was interested in, though, is then one of you, you, Mm -hmm. um, finds your sobriety, finds a a beautiful life, finds a passion. It appears to me like writing is definitely your passion. Yes. And the other person dies. Yeah. And I wonder whether you've had... You know, survivor guilt can go a lot of different ways. It's not even always guilt. Sometimes it's just confusion. Mm-hmm. Why would why would we end up in two such different places? Yeah. And I imagine that you've thought about that. I have a lot. A, a good part of the book is me kind of trying to figure out, you know, how we both came from this family and and how did we end up where we ended up when we clearly had moments where we were on very parallel paths. And I think for me, it comes down to two things. You know, I was almost six years older than Sarah and I didn't really touch alcohol or drugs until I was 18 or 19. Mm. And I had already gone through, um, I had cancer when I was 18 and went through treatment. I ended up like living with a partner at that time and very much had to grow up and be an advocate for my body. And I had to learn how to be, you know, as much of an adult as I could be at that age. Um, So when I got clean, I had skills to return to. I, you know, they sort of like often said that you sort of stop mentally maturing the age you started using and for my sister, she started using really young. She was like 14 or 15 when she first really um, started getting into drugs and alcohol. And by 16, she was an opiate addict. So she didn't have a lot of life skills. She didn't know how to pay bills or um, make dinner <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, all these like really basic things that in, in this one year that she was sober, I know she was really, really hard on herself for not being able to do the things that she looked around and saw every other 21-year-old being able to do. And so I think that that was a huge part of why I was able to stay clean and she wasn't. Um, I also, because of the cancer, had gone to therapy at a decently young age, 19 or so. And so I also had that to return to. I knew that there was this support system. Whereas Sarah at 16 never had really done therapy before. And so it wasn't really something that she turned to. 
um, when she was struggling. And I think the other really big difference is that I was never physically addicted to anything. I, you know, loved alcohol and I loved cocaine, but I never had to go with through withdrawal. And I'm in fact, um, pretty, I call it an allergy and an allergy to opiates. I throw up a lot if I take even a small amount, whereas obviously Sarah was not <laughs> allergic in any way. Mm, yes. And I've often said that, you know, if I wasn't allergic to opiates for all I know, I would be in the same place she is because I watched her go through withdrawals a number of times and it was torturous. The sheer will of her body to want and to need this thing to take away the pain and the shakes and the nausea. I don't know if I could have done that. And every time she did it, I was in awe <laughs> of her. And so I, I really think that we had those, she had those things working against her and I had those things working for me. You also strike me as a person from reading your book and talking to you yeah. right now who makes something out of your experiences. You know, I've, I've said many times if I could give all my clients one ingredient, mm -hmm. you know, if I could bottle it, it would be belief that, that hard times can result in something. And obviously that, that has everything to do with my point of view, but um, it seems as if you dive into your experiences and try to use them in some way. Absolutely. I, you know, I've said to people, like, I wouldn't wish my life on anyone, but in, or at least the tra traumatic experiences I've had, but I am certainly a fuller person for it. You know, I had cancer at a young age and um, some of my very first writing was reflecting on that experience. I had to sort of like try to understand death and I was like 18 years old. <laughs> um, and so it sort of just became a necessity to try mm. to understand any difficulties through art. So either I, I did acting when I was a younger person in my 20s and writing at uh, Sarah Lawrence, which was my undergraduate. And mm. both of those things, I think, allowed me to dive in and make understanding out of the trauma um, because it felt safe and I had support. I also feel communities. I, I'm going to ask you to share another part of the book and mm -hmm. it's a, it, it exemplifies this next thing I'm going to say, which is that people who are willing to fully experience um, the depths mm -hmm. seem to me to be able to find that way forward uh, a little better. The, it, a, another paradox, right? You'd think if you, if you express the depths or dive into the depths, um, it would lead you to the depths, but I haven't found that to be true. No, me neither. In fact, the times when I've pushed against it, it's when I turned to alcohol and drugs because I, you know, felt the, this pull towards this trauma I wasn't facing and I decided not to face it. So I decided to numb myself, which really didn't help me in any way. If anything, it just made the process that much longer. So you know, I, can, I completely agree. 
And so there's a piece of the book uh, from the chapter called Remains Mm -hmm. that I'd love to have you share. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. There's a potential life that I can never go back to. There is that life where the phone doesn't ring that night. I get up and have too much coffee. I worry a little bit every day about Sarah. I am mad at a lot of the choices she makes. It's there in the back of my mind when I go to the courthouse to legally marry my partner. In this life though, on the day I had planned to sign my marriage certificate, I go to the beach with my family and a few close friends and scatter my sister's ashes where the mouth of the river meets the ocean. My mother and I stand in the water and shake her remains into the sea. My sister and I had stood in the same spot a few years before to watch the vestiges of our father drift away. We send flowers down the river with her. I watch them float away and think, I will never be able to choose flowers for my wedding without remembering this moment. I won't be able to look at peonies, roses, or lilies and not feel the weight of her ashes against my chest. It is a lot to lose both of our potential lives. Thank you. It is. Yeah. Uh, I talk a lot on this show about the post-traumatic growth Mm -hmm. studies. Uh, I don't know if you've run across them as of yet. No, Uh, not a lot, but I'm uh, interested. (laughs) (laughs) At University of North Carolina, they study uh, when people go through trauma of any kind, which I, I, I think every loss qualifies in some in some sense. Absolutely. And I might say challenges instead of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they get to the point where they can say, I would never w- you know, wish to have that, but I grew. Um, they study the ways in which people have grown mm-hmm. when, they, when they can make that statement. And um, it refers to something you were saying the last the, uh, the last segment about um, you know you you wouldn't wish the thing to happen and you have grown that they're yes. parallel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel I feel that's I, I'm always emphasizing that that it's not we're not trying to say that what happened was a gift because we grew. No no no. <laughs> it's just that it's a gift if we do grow. The growth is a gift, not the experience. So that it can be true at the very same time that it's a lot to lose and that you both lost your potential lives and that there are things that that came out of it for you, including this book, of course. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of living with grief feels like a contradiction because... I say in my book several times that I will never be okay. And I mean that sincerely. I mean that I will never be okay that my little sister died. I will never be okay that she may have been killed. I will never be okay that her body was alone for four days. That trauma, that hurt is there. But I also have a really good life. I have joy. I have a great spouse. We have great animals. I have good friends. I have a creative practice. You know, there's so much good that has grown around that. And they seem like they're in contradiction, but they're not. And I think that 
when I read a lot of grief memoirs, there was sort of this point in the books where the author was okay, like enough time had passed and they were able to move on. And I think I wanted to sort of normalize for those that felt the way I did, that it's okay to not be okay, that it's okay to not be okay and still want joy and to have a good life at the same time. I, one thing I say about grief a lot, we'll see if that this resonates with you, is that the primary skill of living, of going forward with grief is learning to be in two places at once. A hundred percent. All the time. <laughs> All the time. Exactly. All the time. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes and more than others, right? Like you get triggered. But yeah. Exactly. And of course, um, as I was saying to you before we went on air, you know, I'm almost 25 years mm -hmm. after this major loss that I had at a, at a, not as young as you, but younger than many people have mm -hmm. a, you know, yeah. crushing loss. Yes. Um, and it is very different at 25 years, but there still is, uh, I'm still always aware that that happened, obviously, you know, <laughs> because yeah. I do this, but even if I didn't do this, um, that has that that will never have not happened in my life, right? It will. And they will never be that. here again. And that's this strange fact yeah. that anyone who's lost someone has to live with all the time. It's like, yeah, I feel like some part of my brain, conscious or unconscious, is forever turning that over. But luckily. I'm a multitasker, so I can <laughs> and if you many other things. <laughs> if you hadn't been, you would have had to learn to be, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I probably wasn't born a multitasker, but enough trauma I have learned to uh, Yes, to I know for sure that. I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to learn it. Let's take another break and we'll come back and talk okay. some more. And listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief Post page to find all the links to me. And to find Rose Anderson, go to roseandersonwrites.com, Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, writes.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Rose Anderson, author of The Heart and Other Monsters, and um, I, I want to start this segment, Rose, with another kind of deep dive that you take mm-hmm. uh, in your book, um, because after that, I want to talk about where you've come since then. Okay. Um, but could we start with um, the the excerpt from the uh, chapter entitled Package? Yes, absolutely. All right. Okay. In the weeks after her death, I Google, how does it feel to die of a meth overdose? It occurs to me that everyone who truly knows is already dead. I believe things get quite warm when the body encounters too much meth. An explosion, brain bursting, head blasting off. These are the phrases that I read on drug forums. All that heat and then nothing. Or perhaps there is something in between the heat and the nothing. Maybe Sarah looked down from that in-between place and saw the lovely beastly universe shimmering beneath her and said, no, thank you. I am done with this. The coldness comes later. So much cold. The bathroom tile she dies on, her skin as the days wear on. My mother, realizing she has sent a package to her already dead daughter, the part of my heart where all the bad things live. I keep them encased in ice so they cannot touch me. At the very center of this lies the darkest part of me. It is slowly fine. I can hear the drip, drip, drip of the icy memories that I fear will eventually drown me. I wanted to start there because you're not drowning. No. You know? <laughs> and and I have to think that being able to express that is, at least for me, uh, being able to express my grief is part of not drowning in it. And, of course, in this time, as we speak, we're... Uh, I'm not going out much. We're in COVID still. Mm-hmm. Same. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm I'm using every skill I have mm-hmm. to, to cope with that. Um, and I give myself permission for mo- moments of, um, for being bereft at moments. Yes. When I am, I am. And that's, that has all my permission. And then I move out of it. You know, so um, that seems to be sort of part of what you and I are talking about. And um, and so in this other track where you have a beautiful life, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering whether the beauty of it, and, and you can talk about what's beautiful to you, mm-hmm. um, is there a way that that actually also relies on being open to all your experiences. Yeah, I think so. Good, bad, and indifferent. You yeah. Know? Um, it's interesting in the 
in the previous excerpt where I talk about, you know, I, I was supposed to sign my marriage certificate on the day we scattered her ashes. I ended up eventually um, that relationship ended. And I don't think it would have if Sarah hadn't have died. And I, mm-hmm. I mean that in a positive way in that who I was and what I discovered about myself after her death and my standards for the joy I wanted to experience were much higher. Yes. And it was a perfectly comfortable and nice relationship that was no longer enough for me. And once we parted, I met my spouse, now my spouse, Josh, who is a delight. <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, represents all these things that I didn't actually really, I don't know, just thought I deserved or looked for or prioritized. And it, it, and our relationship is a direct result of allowing the trauma to guide me towards a better understanding of who I am. And, but, you know, keep in mind, a lot of that guidance was with a very qualified therapist. <laughs> something I was doing like at home, you know, by myself. Like Thank you for the endorsement for dedicated therapy. work. <laughs> I just think that it's good to remind people, you know, yeah, or it doesn't come out it, of nowhere. <laughs> for sure. And even though I am a therapist, I truly believe in that form. Mm-hmm. I have known people who find another way, but they... Oh but they Absolutely. find a way, <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's uh, still a way. It doesn't just happen. I guess no, it doesn't, you it know, doesn't. it happens through meditation or through therapy or through art, like whatever it is that they f- use the tool for expression and feeling. You still need that tool. And I think, you know, we're not a society that really talks about grief very much or allows for much grieving and certainly not public grieving. But I find the people who are the most whole after a loss are those who actually engage with the grieving process as deeply as possible. And Mm -hmm. I wish that that was encouraged more here. Better, better realized because, yeah. um, People's worst fear is a be- a big loss, and yet yes. we'll all have it. And then when you have it, everyone wants you to ignore it. <laughs> you know, and no one worst knows what fear to say. Ignore it doesn't it doesn't go together. I think there's beginning to be some, you know, just in the time that I've been a grief counselor, I've noticed some shift. But it yes. may be partly because I'm talking about it all the time with people who <laughs> talk about it. We, we don't know exactly. But um, yes, that's very familiar to me. You, you caused me to remember uh, when I've, I'm remarried, when I first met my now wife. It's been over 20 years mm-hmm. um, that, we've, that we've been together. And she was lamenting that we hadn't uh, met sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe back before I was ever with my first wife. And mm-hmm. I said, but then you wouldn't be with the person I am now. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that our relationship would have worked in the same way whatsoever yeah. before I went through that. I, uh, same. I so, wouldn't be, and you know, my, um, my spouse had gone through a divorce before we met and I don't, and, and 
in many, many ways that changed him for the better, especially in terms of who he is as a partner and what um, being able to vocalize his needs. And I think he needed to go through that for us to be partners. Like we each had a lot of growing to do <laughs> before <laughs> we could meet each other as equals, ready and willing to do the work to have a healthy, happy relationship. Hmm. And we both had to go through those things. Um, so I completely understand what you're saying. Well, we, we actually figured out that we both went to the same concert like many, many years ago. And I just kept saying, I'm so glad we didn't meet because <laughs> I wouldn't have been ready for you and it would have ruined it. <laughs> well, in a twist of ironic fate, my first wife and my second wife knew each other quite well. Oh my gosh. But we had never met. So uh, it's a similar story. That's so interesting. Uh, which which actually did help me a lot, as you can imagine. Yeah, that's uh, lovely. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it maybe you know if I was more it was if I was more cosmically inclined, I'd probably say people meet <laughs> at the right time. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know that's a lovely way of thinking about it. I I would it would be really nice if that was a cosmic intervention we can, we can, but who knows we can decide it is right <laughs> yeah i often <laughs> do of that our experiences we can just say sure why not yeah i do that all the time <laughs> particularly around like grief and and um ghosts and things like that at any given moment i am a firm believer and then the next minute i don't believe in it at all it is completely at my whim of what i need in the moment <laughs> Well, you know, I, that leads me to the last thing. We only have a few more minutes, but yeah. I'd like to talk a little about, about your relationship with Sarah now. Yeah. Um, because I, I believe you have one. Yes. No matter what we think about her side of the equation. Um, yeah. And I just wondered how you, how you think about that and how it manifests in your life. Well, I dream about her a lot. Um or I'll go through periods of dreaming about her a lot. And it's often a version of the same dream, which is that I realize that she should be dead, but she's not. Mm -hmm. And that I'm the only one that can warn her in time, which is a strange <laughs> uh, purgatory <laughs> to live in in my sleep. But what it does is it allows... It is not a perfect dream, but it is a dream where we're interacting and it is the essence of our uh, big sister, little sister relationship, which is that I'm trying to tell her what to do and she won't listen. <laughs> um, so while it's- I, always, I'm sorry to laugh because no, it's such it's, a serious dream, but <laughs> um, I can just imagine the feeling of that. Yeah. You know, I wake up sad and like so irritated with her. And I think that that's where I'm at is I've gone through all these emotions. I've been so angry at her. I've missed her so deeply. I've put her on a pedestal and I vilified her. I've done it all since she died. And I think now I'm just at the place where I love her where for all that she was. And I um, have this moment in the book where I'm, uh, when I'm, I have um, my wedding in the book and I, I uh, talk about this moment I have with one of Sarah's best friends where we joke that if she was at my wedding, she would have made it all about her 
she would have tried to kiss, you know, a married groomsman. <laughs> and that we both would do anything to have her there, <laughs> knowing that this is how she would behave. And that to me is really the the essence of, I think, my relationship with her now is that I, I think for the first time fully accept her for who she is. And I'm just sad I can't say that to her in person. It's interesting because uh, running through my head on and off this whole hour has been Sarah was really kick-ass. She was great. <laughs> oh, I mean, you she know? has boyfriends that still love her from like a decade ago. <laughs> she was that magnetic. But she was also kind of awful. But like mm -hmm. she was so charming you kind of just let her get away with it. Um, and she was, you know, I use the word infuriating a lot uh, because she was just sort of mischievous and manipulative. And she was also incredibly loyal and funny. She was all those things at once. And yeah, I mean, I would, she lit up any room she was in. Yeah. You know, I have this idea that I that I think about and talk about a lot that there's no bad quality. There's just how it expresses itself. Yes. You know, there's a spectrum. So that I wouldn't consider her her um, magnetism and all that to be some different person from the trouble she got into. Well, um, no, I mean, she used that magnetism in the trouble she got into. And I, yeah, it's just two sides of the same coin, you know. Her manipulation was cute and funny when it was around, like, wanting to borrow my car and, you know, whatever, like, normal teenage hijinks. And it was not so funny when she was lying and stealing from people to use drugs. But it was still her, you know? Like, it was, yes. the essence was still there, which is she was wild and wily and lovely and funny. And I hope people will go to your book and, and get to know her even better. Thank you for, ha for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. It really was. To find Rose Anderson, you can go to Rose Anderson Writes with an uh, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, writes.com. Next week, I'll have Shelby Forsythia, author of Your Grief, Your Way, A Year of Practical Guidance and Comfort After Loss. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.